Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome once again to FYI for your innovation, Arc Invest's uh, podcast. We're here today with a special guest from Hebrew University. We have a special relationship with Hebrew University. Uh, we collaborate with Hebrew University on on research. And today we have Professor Isaiah or Shai Arkin, and he is the Arthur Ledgewa Professor of Structural Biochemistry at the Hebrew University. He's the former Vice President of Research and Development, so he's very familiar with much of the research the university does do, not just biochemistry and life sciences. And prior to these roles, interestingly, I was surprised to find out that Shai was a research scientist, I think one of the first research scientists at D.E. Shaw Research, so our own industry, and also was a lecturer in biochemistry at the University of Cambridge. Shai completed his PhD in membrane biophysics at Yale University School of Medicine and his postdoc in Axel Brunger's group at Yale University also. So welcome, Shai. We're really happy to have you here, especially during a time when there's a lot of fear going around having to do with one of your specialties, which is the flu virus. And so I just wanted to ask the initial question around that. This is top of mind for the financial markets and for everyone right now around the world. The coronavirus global cases have now surpassed 80,000 and 2,500 fatalities coming out of that. And I'm just wondering, and we're all trying to figure out what would be the worst case? What would be the best case? And what do you think is going to be the most likely case here? So first of all, let me say that it's wonderful to be here and thanks for hosting me. I feel that the underlying aim and goal of the Hebrew University is so well aligned with uh, what it is that uh, ARK Invest is trying to do. So I feel here at home. And uh, before I try to answer that question, let me quote one of my scientific heroes, one of the greatest physicists of all times, Niels Bohr, that said that uh, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> and that's what you're asking me to do. So uh, let's start. The best case scenario is the easiest thing. The disease disappears tomorrow. It's an, Or th that it's just maybe a little worse than the flu, but the media has overblown what we're going through right now. Well, I would say that 
Even today, I don't know if you appreciate that, but every day in China and in the United States, more people are dying because of flu and its complications than the new coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So on a given year, on any given year in the United States alone, about 60,000 people die due to uh, flu and its complications, pneumonia, etc. But the thing about the flu, it's an evil that we know. And the biggest problem with this new coronavirus epidemic is the fear of the unknown. So we have no clue where it's going to stop. If we use, you know, SARS as an example, SARS came out of nowhere and disappeared into nowhere. I mean, when the spring came, early summer, it vanished. And we haven't had a single case of SARS for 18 years. Mm -hmm. 18 years. Now, is that going to happen with this virus? You know, if I were a betting man, I would probably say that is probably what's going to happen. And the moment that the temperatures will rise a bit, two things will happen. First of all, the virus stability outside of our body is reduced when the temperatures are a bit higher mm -hmm. and people are less cooped up in enclosed uh, places and they don't breathe each other's air. Mm -hmm. So those are two sort of mitigating factors working against the disease spread. Worst case scenario is something that I, uh, you know, am even fearful to utter because we are familiar with uh, dreadful diseases such as the Spanish flu pandemic in the beginning of the 20th century with a catastrophic death toll. I mean, is this anything like that? Again, difficult to say. But in human history, there have been dreadful epidemics caused by viruses, you know, smallpox and, and influenza and by bacteria, the Black Plague. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to give any doomsday uh, forecasts. And so most likely is potentially warm weather alleviates this. One of the questions, and this is what the financial markets want to believe, but when it hit Singapore and when the British people, I guess there were four individuals who mm -hmm. attended a conference in Singapore, they then they were infected and they transported it to Switzerland, if I'm not mistaken. That's when my antenna went up and I said, whoa, wait a minute, Singapore is hot. And they got it there. But it's all, there's also a very heavy concentration of Chinese visitors as well. So Absolutely. The, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the, that is the good and bad thing about globalization, that someone can get on a plane and transfer some sort of noxious agent across the world. But people are aware of this. And again, if we think about the disease, it's a 2% mortality rate. Now, obviously, every individual is a world in its own. But this is not an immediate thing that simply kills people like Ebola or, or other dreadful things. So even if people are aware of someone contracting the disease and flying to another country, you know, there's containment. And more often than not, people, uh, you know, get better from this. So, you know, one thing that people need to remind themselves is what happens to the flu? Why do we have a flu season? Did you ever think about that? Why does it go away when the spring comes? You know, why does it not sustain itself? Even if we disregard people taking vaccinations, etc. So, again, it... It's difficult to predict, but I would probably anticipate that that's what's going to happen here. And final question. We know that the number of new cases in China has peaked and that they've been falling. And in fact, I believe the number of people recovering far surpasses now 
the number contracting. And, and they've gone to extreme measures to, to achieve that. But now we're seeing it pick up around the world. We've Italy and, and Korea, Iran. Do you think that we're going to have to go through containment or exercises like China has to, to get rid of this? I know in Italy, they've already quarantined a number of cities. If you think about the mass of people that were infected, that are currently infected with this virus in China, that's a huge number that outsurpasses anything outside of China. So it's so much more, far easier to quarantine, you know, a handful of individuals because that's still what we're talking about, 100, 200 people outside of China, if it's in Italy or Korea, et cetera. These are not huge number of people. So I would imagine that, you know, governments and local agencies should be able to, to have this under control. And again, we, we need to remember 98 people out of 100 recover from this. This is not doomsday. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out how much has social media put fear into people and, you know, it's going, quote unquote, viral, right? right? The fear is going viral more than the disease itself. And so we're trying, again, we're just trying to figure out the odds of this. We don't want to be silly and underestimate what's going on, but we also don't want to overestimate maybe because of headlines and, and, and social media. So if we look at what happens in the West, if we were here a hundred years ago, infectious diseases were a huge problem. If we're looking what happens in the West today, infectious diseases do not really present significant mortality threats. I mean, uh, influenza, which is the this most serious threat due to an infectious agent in the West, kills so fewer people than other diseases. Again, I don't think there's a, a basis for this unfounded fear. But having said that, again, it's, it, it, predictions are very risky. And now I know there's a race to develop the first vaccine. We've been astonished, uh, just compared to SARS, how much more quickly this virus was sequenced. I think it took, what was it, months, months and months for the SARS, and this was weeks. So how long do you think it will be until we have a vaccine? And do you have any sense of who might be best placed to So here it? I want to be slightly more pessimistic. Mm -hmm. So if we look at sequencing technology... Mm -hmm. At 2002, uh, you know, we just finished the human genome at 2000, right. which cost billions upon billions yes. of dollars. Yes. Today, 20 years after that, to sequence a, a human is, you know, several thousand dollars and perhaps even less so. So sequencing technology has advanced dramatically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Vaccination technology hasn't. And we need to recall, for example, that there are several very threatening viruses still around that we haven't been able to generate a vaccine. HIV is one example. Hepatitis C is another. We have been able to counter those with other measures, but vaccination is not something that if you simply apply normal technology, you have an assured success rate. Mm -hmm. So once again, if this were any random virus, you would probably say, give it a few months, people should be able to generate a vaccine mm -hmm. and that shouldn't be a problem. But since we're familiar with notable failures, hepatitis C virus and HIV, then, you know, once again, I feel that I'm being very iffy and unwilling to commit on any one of my predictions. But here I would say, you know, several months, probably. 
Okay. And I know I keep saying last question, but it is there, uh-huh. there are so many out there. We thought we understood that this coronavirus was not mutating. Is that your understanding? And is that important? So if there's one very positive thing that one can say is that the variability between individual viruses that were sequenced were very, very, very low. Mm -hmm. And that means that as opposed to influenza, which you need to get a new vaccination every year because the virus undergoes shifts and drifts in its genomic information, due to the fact that it does a very poor intentionally poor job at replicating its genomic information. Here, it would seem that nearly all coronaviruses that were sequenced were virtually identical to one another. So probably we will not have a problem of generating a new vaccine for every individual case. uh, And you will have one very effective vaccination like we have for other viruses, for example, uh, smallpox, et cetera. As we've been studying this coronavirus, what surprised me, having never heard the word really coronavirus before, now I know it's part of your lexicon, but okay. uh, is that there are three coronavi- other coronaviruses that kind of sweep through and, and seem like the flu to us now. Is that your understanding as well? So a a bit of history from a biochemist. Mm -hmm. So before the winter of 2002, 2003, there were probably five labs in the world that were studying coronaviruses. Why? Because as far as humans are concerned, this was really not a very noxious pathogen. It was responsible for not a very large proportion, but a significant proportion of common colds, that along with rhinoviruses. It was very impactful in veterinary. So uh, Mm -hmm. uh, animals, but in terms of humans, not really a factor. 2002, 2003, winter came and then we had SARS, which was a coronavirus, but it was a very distinct member of the coronavirus. It was very unusual and that was very pathogenic. That had a death rate of close to 10%. So suddenly we had, wow, you know, what's different in SARS than other members of the coronaviruses? And in all honesty, people studied SARS, but then the disease disappeared. And with that, you know, understandably, the interest and the funding. Mm. And since the past 18 years, we were left with these benign regular coronaviruses that cause a bit of sniffling and sneezing. But other than that, really don't present a a tremendous risk to us. Hmm. So once again, we are at the stage where a coronavirus member of the family has changed its skin and became far more pathogenic. And uh, it's very difficult still to us to say, you know, why are regular coronaviruses not that problematic? And this guy is is such a threat. Mm. Okay, on to the next set of topics. I know that your expertise is in structural biology. Uh, Immunotherapy is a hot topic today. What kind of advances do you expect to see within immunotherapy in, in the next five to 10 years? And what has surprised you during the last five to 10 years, if anything? You're absolutely correct in saying that immunotherapy, especially in the realms of cancer therapy, is I wouldn't even say the next big thing. Mm. It's the big thing. Mm -hmm. There are many people that say that cancer is actually something that's amiss by the immune system. In fact, the immune system on a daily basis prevents rogue cells from replicating incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And cancer is the one out of a million that the immune system misses out. 
So what we're trying to do is we're trying to bootstrap or remind the immune system, you know, you forgot this cell over here, this tissue over here that is replicating rapidly. And that's, that's working rather well. The problem is, is that the immune system is very specific. It built its livelihood on the ability to recognize something very, very specifically. Now, it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because it reduces toxic side effects. It's a bad thing because it means that immune therapy for one cancer will be completely ineffective against the other because we tend to group cancer as one disease. Mm -hmm. But it's one disease based on the symptom, not the cause. Mm -hmm. You might have two individuals that have cancer in a particular tissue, but the cause, their molecular defect, which the immune system will recognize, is completely distinct. Mm -hmm. Not unlike rhinoviruses cause the common cold and regular coronaviruses cause the common cold. Mm -hmm. So we can't just say if we have a respiratory tract infection, let's treat it exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. The same thing is true about the immune system. But I'm very optimistic that more and more of these biological treatments against cancer will come into the field and, and will make a very, very big impact. And in my mind, the biggest thing that we're going to be able to do is if you combine that with modern genomics that I know that you're personally mm -hmm. interested mm -hmm. that will relate to early diagnostics that combined with the immunotherapy, we're going to make a big dent in this disease. Yeah, we hope it's m more than just a big dent. We'd love to think we could undo the disease, you know, really diffuse it completely. Well, I'll tell you an interesting story if I may interject. Yes. So what scientists like to do every so often is to try to look at other areas in nature uh, to see how they were able to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. So for example, sharks barely get in any infections by bacteria. Why is that? And, and there's so many other instances. And one of the things that I find very interesting, and again, this was actually, this reached the popular media as well, is believe it or not, there are mammals that don't get cancer. Mm -hmm. And one of the best example is elephants. Elephants don't get cancer. Now, let's think about this for a second. So what is cancer? Cancer is one of the cells in your body going haywire, for lack of a more technical term. Now, the more cells that you have in your body, the probability of a cell going haywire is higher. Now, elephant is the largest mammal out there, at least land-based animal. So their probability of contracting cancer or developing cancer is much larger. So why is it that they were able to prevent this? Because they have more copies of cancer controlling genes in their body than we do. Hmm. We have the same mechanism, but they have it in more abundance. So when the cells finish replicating, we want to make sure that A, they've done a good job, they've replicated things accurately, and B, that they don't continue onwards. And because of that, we have a very sophisticated machinery in our body, which is called checkpoint inhibition. Now, when things go wrong, when your checkpoint inhibitors start malfunctioning, that's when you get cancer. And one of the most important components in that machinery is a protein called P53. Uh, the name is not very imaginative. It's called P53 because it's a protein. So that's where the P comes from. And 53 because that's its size, that's its weight. And it turns out it's one of the most important elements. So our body has very few copies of this protein, but elephants have a far larger copy, about 20, 30 times more than we do. And that's why they are so much better at ensuring 
that their replication is done precisely and it stops when it needs to stop. And that's why, again, elephants get less cancer than we do. So if there was a way that we were to make more P53 in our body, perhaps that would be a way to subdue cancer. And are there, I know a lot of companies are working on using P53. Do any strike you? And, and if, there, if, if you don't want to give an answer here, that's fine. But are, are there any, you think, doing the research in a more promising way, given your background? Well, I, I can't say that it's not as if I have an immediate idea that, oh, if we were to just do this, you know, everything would be okay. But I'm excited about the fact that, A, this is an important topic that is used by several different companies, each going in a different direction. Because what we forget very often that, the entire underlying principle of research is that you don't know what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. So just by the fact that you have several different companies, each trying a different route, you know, hopefully one of them will actually hit the bullseye. So if we can learn from those animals as well, by the way, whales don't get cancer as well mm. because of precisely the same reason. So I'm very optimistic that combining understanding of other animals, their genomics, early diagnostics and immunotherapy will be able to put a very, very, very big dent in, uh, in this ailment. Oh, that's fascinating. I've never heard that. That's, that's terrific. Very hopeful. One of the companies we've been watching, I've been watching for years and years and, and, and know very well, is in Israel, Compugen, ah. checkpoint inhibitors. Mm -hmm. They've in silico discovery. That company has taught me a lot about what's possible. And I've been astonished at how how many really checkpoint inhibitors they have surfaced and now they're working with drug uh, drug companies. What is your thought about checkpoint inhibitors, the way we're going about this right now? I think it's precisely the way to pursue. Mm -hmm. I think this is, in my mind, combines two very correct trains of thought. So one of them is, let's look at the specific defect in this particular cancer, as opposed to let's try just to subdue any replicating cell. Mm -hmm. Because if you do that, it is true to say that cancer cells replicate faster than other cells, but other cells replicate as well. So there'll be very harmful side effects that we're all familiar with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So looking at a checkpoint inhibitor, which is precisely meaning that a cell has a regulatory mechanism that tells it, you know, when you should or when you should not replicate, that's the defect in cancer cells. Yes. Another thing that they're doing brilliantly is utilizing an approach that tries to distinguish why some individuals and some tissues are susceptible to different conditions. And what do I mean by that? Let's, let's retrace our steps for a second. How come only two, I, I know this might sound a bit perverse. Why do only 2% of the people die from this new coronavirus? What's different about them than the other 98 percentile that thankfully don't? Mm -hmm. Okay. Can we understand, is there something in their genetics? Is there something in their makeup? Is there something about their metabolites? Have they eaten anything? There's a large number of parameters that we can try to assess, big data, in order to understand the specific mechanism of that disease. And that's precisely what Compugen and their colleagues are doing. So on the one hand, they're targeting the correct defects in cancer. And on the other, they're using large data sets in order to understand why are these defects so important and why do they uh, come into their own only in some individuals and not in the other. 
Yeah, it's been remarkable to to watch how many markers they have found compared to the largest pharmaceutical companies who have not been able to find the same amount. And it yeah. is this in, this big data in silico drug discovery. Most people didn't think that was possible. Well, I think this is what Israelis are famed for, mm-hmm. thinking out of the box. Yeah. This is uh, the advantage of being a tiny little state. You can't compete precisely using the same tools and the same rules and the same approach that the big guys do. And if you have an off-the-beaten-track way of thinking, then that's how you can succeed. And I'm very happy and proud as an Israeli to say that we've, you know, we've made this as our beaten track mm-hmm. to walk off the beaten track because that's that's what you need to do to succeed today, especially if you're a tiny little nation like us. Yeah. Well, the person who introduced me to CompuGen was Marty Gerstel. Ah. And he was the chairman and CEO mm-hmm. for, for years. He, I guess, was the CEO of Alza before they sold Alza to, I think it was J&J. So he had a big following. One of them, Bill Hyman, actually, who introduced me to the company from Highbar. And he told me, this was in the late 90s uh, that I met Marty. He saw the future. He saw the future, but it was like so many futuristic concepts. You could see it, but we were probably 20 years away from it. But the dream was there, but there was so much hard work that had to take place between now and then. But now it's happening. It really is happening. And I think it's happening. Took a long time coming. You know, in the early days, we thought it was going to happen within years. And now people, now that it is happening, there are a lot of analysts who have said, yeah, 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 we've we've heard this before. And there's some suspicion that this really is happening. You believe it's really happening? Yes, I think it's a confluence of several things happening at the same time, enabling technology first and foremost. I mean, astrophysics really didn't make a big impact until very good telescopes were invented, right? So our ability to generate large data sets because sequencing has skyrocketed. I mean, sequencing has outpaced CPUs in their performance. Oh, we know, we know, yeah. Unbelievable. So that enabled suddenly people to ask questions that they never realized that they couldn't ask before. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, it wasn't even legitimate to say, yeah, why don't we go ahead and sequence 10,000 people and see what are the differences and why these individuals are susceptible and the others are not. I mean, it, it was it was a ludicrous question. Mm-hmm. It would be someone like saying, you know, what should be the speed limit on Mars? Mm-hmm. We haven't reached Mars yet, right. okay, right. with automobiles. Yeah. But that's precisely <laughs> what we're doing today in genomics. We have these enabling technologies all these omics technologies that are enabling scientists to combine that with rigorous artificial intelligence, big data analytics, uh, and you name it, and to ask questions and to provide answers that, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't even dream that we could, but today we can. Yeah. And at CompuGen, what I've also found interesting, and Anat and her team have done an amazing job, is they're not only finding breakthroughs in terms of checkpoint inhibitors, but they're also seeing breakthroughs, although I don't think focusing right now as much on it, in autoimmune diseases, Mm -hmm. which is also a huge unmet need. So in silico drug discovery is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Exactly. What are the challenges facing the use of immunotherapies 
in solid tumors? And do you think we'll overcome them? I think there's a belief that liquid tumors, fine, but solid tumors, some of the breakthroughs we're talking about, it's going to be a very long time. So here I would say that once again, if you combine early diagnostics with immunotherapy, you know, that's the winning combination. So before the tumor becomes uh, appreciable in size, before you can penetrate its inner workings, then you have a far better chance of success. And Mm -hmm. once again, here I'm convinced that genomics and big data analytics will provide you these early on tests. Mm -hmm. If it's liquid biopsies, uh, exciting work that we're doing at the Hebrew University, and uh, other sort of efforts worldwide, that combined with uh, immunotherapy will, will make a big difference. And you think in solid tumors as well? I would suspect that the smaller the tumor is, the less it has progressed, your chances of uh, overcoming this are much larger. Right. Yeah. So identifying cancer in stage one, which is precisely the objective here. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. tangentially, uh, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work on CRISPR gene mm-hmm. editing. Are your hopes high in that space as well? So before this, I was optimistic about several of your questions. Here, I can't be that optimistic because our genome is huge. We have 3 billion nucleotides. Mm -hmm. And while CRISPR is very specific, to be able to say that it will only change that particular site, only those 10 nucleotides, Mm -hmm. only those 10 letters out of 3 billion, that's difficult. And we still know as of today that there's a lot of off-site activity, sort of nonspecific. It's far better than any of the other techniques that we have, but it's still not the magic bullet. Yeah, the market agrees with you on that. You know, I, I often say there are three companies with the foundational patents for CRISPR-Cas9, right. so CRISPR Therapeutics, Intelia, Editas. Today, the three of them together, collectively, in terms of market cap, are roughly worth $5 billion. Apple is $1.5 trillion. Apple has transformed our lives. Apple has not cured disease. This has a shot. And we are getting some very early human trial data, whether it's sickle cell, beta thalassemia, even leukemia, I suppose, in in China, peer-reviewed here in the U.S., hopeful signs, hopeful that there are some breakthroughs. So we think that the markets are too pessimistic. They're not paying anything for this. They just don't believe it's going to work. Whereas we are seeing some early signs that it's, it's, it's so interesting to me to be in this time period where we're seeing breakthroughs all over the place. And I'm not just talking about in the genomic space. And yet the markets are so fearful. They're, they're so fearful. They're not willing to price anything into the markets for, hey, this could actually cure some cancers. I'm not, I'm not a financial expert, mm-hmm. but I do remember we had the concept of genetic engineering mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, just put a virus in there and it should be able to control and, and to change whatever defect it had. And that had a lot of promise as well, but they never reached anywhere The level of specificity that CRISPR has. So CRISPR is, I don't even want to say a hundred times better. It's thousands of times better than what we had before. Is it sufficiently good? Time would tell. I think it's incredibly promising. And I think this is clearly the route. It's another example of an enabling technology Mm -hmm. that has transformed our thoughts. The ability to edit something that before that was a huge hassle and the results gave you so many off-target malfunctions. CRISPR is, a, is so much better. Is it sufficiently good? You're reserving judgment. So is the market. 
Right. Yes. Yes. So, but, but let me be slightly optimistic that if 15 years ago, one would give you, you know, this is what adenovirus genomic uh, engineering gives you in CRISPR at the same time, you'd say, wow, mm -hmm. th this is like a, a Ferrari versus a Ford Model T. Mm -hmm. And so uh, maybe we can open this up since you were vice president of research and at the university and you know what else is being done at the university. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about some of the projects and research that is most exciting to you and to the university. Okay, uh, I'll be happy to do that. Although what you're asking me is, you know, which of my kids do I like more? <laughs> but fortunately, I'm no longer the vice president for research and development. So now I can speak my mind. But what I like in particular are areas that are multidisciplinary. So, so several people coming together, each with their own sort of skill set. So for example, Israel is known for many things, as well as being in a not the world's best neighborhood. <laughs> and because of that, landmines are an issue. <laughs> so we had two researchers coming together and to try to provide a, a solution for effective and safe removal of landmines. So Professor Shimshon Belkin and Professor Ronia Granat. So what have they done? What they have done is to be able to generate very safely a map of your landmines which will then enable you to remove them very safely. So how do they do that? Shimshon Belkin genetically engineered bacteria to fluoresce when they detect minute amounts of explosives. Mm. So what he does, he spreads these bacteria on a particular landmine field. And then Professor Ronia Granat was able to use a laser scanning in order to see what are the areas that fluoresce. And at the end, all you need to do is to look at the tiny little fluorescent specks and you see, aha, that's where my landmine is. So this is a combination of, again, advanced microbiological techniques, advanced uh, laser scanning techniques, and to provide a very safe procedure. So I think this is a wonderful example of thinking outside of the box, teamworks that uh, Israelis are famous for, uh, the Hebrew University is famous for as well. Yeah, what's so interesting about what you're saying is I feel as though the way that traditional research departments in the financial world are set up, they're not set up to even understand what you're talking about because research is so siloed within each sector by you know more specialization. And the way we've set up research here is to cut across economic sectors, right. you know, be multidisciplinary. Every analyst here is comfortable with technology. Technology is seeping into every sector, every industry. And then we have these five platforms, which I, I mentioned to you earlier, that they are all, they're cross-sector, each one of them, and they're converging. So autonomous taxi networks involve robotics, energy storage, artificial intelligence, right? Next generation internet. So when we model a company like Tesla, and we're known for Tesla, we're using all of those disciplines. Traditional research is focused on Tesla, the auto company. This is not an auto company. We've moved into a multidisciplinary world. And I don't think that traditional research is set up today to help companies capitalize on the innovation-related investments out there. So it's great to know that Hebrew University is. Uh, this is the only way to go, I think, going forward in, in terms of innovation, of course, 
Israel is all about uh, innovation. Absolutely. I think that today we need to look back four or five hundred years ago and to become Renaissance men and women once again. Mm -hmm. Now, it's very challenging because the areas have become so specialized. You know, you can learn 10 years of mathematics and only cover what was accomplished until the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But we need to be able to find a common language with, with people because they bring the, with themselves not only different tool set, but different way of thinking of things. And if you look at the major challenges that we're facing today, you know, aging, the environment, climate change, etc., you can't just have one set of uh, scientists there. I mean, yes, aging is very important to have physicians there. But what about the social impact? What about the economic impact? And the environment is exactly the same. So unless you can build these teams with people that are coming from different disciplines, you won't be able to tackle these uh, very challenging issues. Right. Well, I want to thank you, Shai, very much for joining us today. Uh, we are looking forward to Hebrew University's conference here in New York, Nexus Israel. The date will be set soon, so we ask everyone to stay tuned. It's going to be very exciting. We Hebrew University brings over just this treasure trove of intellectual heft and talent. So we're very privileged to be in your ecosystem. And just thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. I'd like to thank you for hosting us. And I think we benefit from our partnerships just as much as you do, if not more. Thank you. Thank you so much. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. <laughs> <laughs>